Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, professor of history in the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor for the War Room. It is a pleasure to have you with us. The United States faces an increasing variety of threats, especially below the level of armed conflict, and the U.S. military has been trying to adapt to those new circumstances. U.S. Army Special Operations Command has just released a new strategy to reflect changes in the operational environment. Our guest today is Lieutenant Colonel Brian Groves, Chief of the Strategic Planning Division at U.S. Army Special Operations Command, who is here to explain the strategy and to discuss its implications for U.S. policies going forward. Welcome, Lieutenant Colonel Groves. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. It's very nice to have you. So why does USASOC need a new strategy? The Army Special Operations Command needs a new strategy because the operational environment has changed and our strategic guidance to meet the threats and potential threats of that new environment has changed. So we're all familiar with the new national defense strategy, now a couple years old, being out, but it takes a while for the big ship that is DOD and all of its subordinate elements to be able to make that rudder correction over time to properly implement all that the national defense strategy is attempting to get after. The new operational environment obviously recognizes that we have strategic atrophy in our ability to both focus on and get after the threats posed by a rising China, mm-hmm. by a somewhat uh, adversarial Russia with rogue nations such as Iran and North Korea um, posing dilemmas for the United States and with a persistent violent extremist organization problem, counterterrorism efforts are still necessary. Our attempt is to demonstrate how we're integrating with the Army, Mm -hmm. how we're continuing to synchronize with SOCOM, how we're ensuring that we don't have any blind spots, but giving ourselves a hard look in the mirror and saying, what have we learned from the past two decades of conflict? What are the best practices we can take forward? How do we need to tailor some of those best practices for the new environment that's not just non-state actor centric, but has peer or peer plus competitors that we need to be ready for? areas of operation and responsibility that we're less familiar with than the CENTCOM AOR that we've been dealing with for the last two decades, and that present new challenges with A2AD or anti-access aerial denial environments where we're going to, our operators are going to be able to be tracked and visible. How can we hide in plain sight? These Mm -hmm. require a back-to-the-basics approach for tradecraft, ability to incorporate both brilliance at the basics as well as revolutionary approaches to things conceptually with new equipment, 
and modernization. And those are important priorities and efforts that our strategy attempts to help us thread the needle on being able to do those things, prepare as part of the broader team to contribute to the Army and the Joint Force should, God forbid, deterrence fail and we need to go Mm -hmm. to large-scale combat operations, but also maintain the SECDEF's direction to the SOCOM enterprise writ large, of which we're over 50% uh, in the Army, uh, to maintain the pulse on counter-VEO operations. Well, I am curious about this. Uh, Is it fair to say that before the, uh, or that one of the reasons for this rethinking or the need for the new strategy is to emphasize that uh, uh, that special special operations uh, extend beyond and outside of the global war on terror, for example. That 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 is this when you talk about the need to be prepared to to meet near peer or, or peer plus competitors. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I think of it in three main bins in our central challenge identified on the first page of the strategy identifies it as counter VEO operations, competition against near or peer plus adversaries, and thirdly, preparing for the big one, large-scale combat operations. We recognize that we're not uh, the only element in the fight here, but Mm -hmm. as part of the broader team on this. And in fact, the first sentence uh, of the strategy says great power competitions means we are in conflict right now. Right. Well, and that, I guess, gets to the the question both uh, in terms of the conflict that we imagine special forces are involved in and to be prepared for is um, what uh, what specific things needed to be changed or reemphasized uh, in this strategy as written that when you when you went through the process of 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 developing the documents. Right. So. Our ability to be a supporting effort to the broader team needed to be emphasized. Mm -hmm. The ability to modernize, to prepare for what the future environment will require us to be able to do needed to be emphasized. The ability to adapt to a new AOR needed to be emphasized. The enemy is not going to be the same. It's more diverse than we've been used to for the last couple of decades. That requires emphasis in new ways. It requires organizational change, culture change, new task organizations, the ability to think different, to be adaptive. Now, at the same time, in an answer to a question that you didn't ask, but the, that the question begs is what stays the same? Yes. Much of our unique capabilities, our core competencies, pillars, if you will, of what we've done remains the same. Our global persistent forward presence, our regional expertise, being mature, older, special operators that bring a set of experience and expertise to the table, access and placement, connections with the interagency, with partner nations and other partners, with country teams, a sort of nexus between the various instruments of of national power on the military side, but connecting to the diplomatic, to the informational, and to the economic Uh, levers of power. We are a force multiplier in that regard for the rest of big army as well as for the joint force. And so that's what we hope to do. I'm I'm curious as a, as a historian, I always have to ask historical questions. So I, 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 uh, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I am curious, uh, 
How long ago did uh, SOCOM uh, write its last strategy? Well, I'm speaking just uh, as a division chief within the G5 yeah. at the Army Special Operations Command and not SOCOM right large, right, sure. to be clear. Um, so our last strategy was under the last commanding general, okay. Lieutenant General Tovo, and came out approximately three, three and a half years ago. Uh, it was a bit of a work in progress, but approximately from 2016 to 2017 oh. time frame, plus or minus a little bit. And so it had been a few years, but it was prior to the recognition by Secretary Mattis of this new environment that I'm describing and the publication of our current NDS. And it was also prior to our commanding, current commanding general, Lieutenant General Fran Baudet, coming on board at USASOC and recognizing how we need to play into the broader shift that's mm -hmm. happening around us in the world and within the U.S. Armed Forces. I'm curious, in, uh, in, in your capacity in the Strategic Planning Division, when you come out with a new strategy, obviously, there's a lot of time that's spent rolling it out. Do you already have a, a sort of notional timetable within strategic planning about when the next strategy will need to come out? Or are you, you hoping that, that you can get everybody familiarized with this one before you got to start writing a new one? More the latter. Uh -huh. So it might be disappointing to you to know that we're not that forward <laughs> thinking to know exactly when the next one comes out. But perhaps it's comforting to recognize also that we recognize it's somewhat conditions based mm, sure. too and not just time based, uh, both based upon the environment as well as based upon national uh, policy guidance and how that trickles down through our higher headquarters. Sure. And, and so this, uh, if I can get a sense of how this happens. So it's, you know, we get the, the Secretary of Defense Mattis when he starts uh, and comes up with the new national defense strategy. This then makes it incumbent on the various joint force commanders to think about uh, how they how they will Im imagine themselves fitting in under this strategy. And this, do we have the impression that basically uh, everybody is doing this? They should they be. They should be, right? If, yes. Right. If they're not, I do have a sense that there is a broader effort beyond just our mm -hmm. command that is doing similar things from their perspective, the capabilities that they bring to to competition or to various aspects of the fight that we've discussed and so on, uh, that there's a DOD comprehensive review, that that's entailing a lot of things from the resources mm -hmm. and that no dollar is too little and mm -hmm. no program is too little to consider for reaping back benefits and reprioritizing that that's secretary esper's charge to to everyone across dod and that part of that is relooking your strategy and what commanders are emphasizing um in this particular environment, right? Because yeah, I guess so. It it, it 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 trickles down and then it has to percolate back up. So everybody That's can right. talk about it. Right? Yeah. And and the percolation back up is something that we within the special operations community really value. The bottom up emphasis on what's important. The bottom up solution. Uh, offering of solutions to problems, whether that's in equipment, off-the-shelf um, technologies that are tailored to meet the the needs that we have, the deployments and threats that we're facing, the um, permissions that we need or the authorities to get after the problem, 
in various ways that we're seeing. Those may be recognition of the fact that we're operating in some cases around the world, and particularly in the Middle East, on counterterrorism authorities under the CTX ORD and Mm -hmm. uh, uh, various things. But we may also need authorities to get after other problem sets in the competition space and that are not covered by those current authorities. And sometimes that comes from the bottom up in various ways. Sure. Well, and and in the uh, in the strategy itself, right, when it talks about uh, critical uh, uh challenges or critical things to avoid. One of the things is that the idea that we need to avoid hubris and to, quote, play team ball with any and all partners to advance mutual interests. And you've talked about this idea of this kind of coordination. And at what level does that kind of coordination take place? Uh, when, so when, when orders or assignments come down, right, how is the, what's the division of labor between sort of the Army and its other special forces uh, colleagues within the uh, American services? But also then how do we, uh, how do we deal with partner special forces operators in various uh, uh, various theaters? Sure. Well, multi-layered question, and I'll attempt to sure. address each of them in turn. So my generic answer is that uh, to your first part, of, the first part of your question is it should, the coordination as relevant and appropriate and when uh, Durloth is authorized should occur at every level, right? Leaders or corresponding as well as lower level staff officers, lower level commanders, action officers need to be coordinating at their levels. When you're out and deployed forward, you need to be coordinating with people in your battle space, the battle space owners, typically, um, almost always, that's not a special operations individual. That's a general purpose force commander that we're operating in their their battle space. And so we need to ensure we have proper coordinations and approvals there. Um, It's somewhat situation dependent uh, on what that coordination looks like and um, how often to what extent we need approval versus notification or concurrence then it's not only DOD wide though. It needs, Mm -hmm. there's times when we're operating in spaces where we need the country team and the ambassadors clearance to do something. And so those are important matters. A a point of clarification Mm -hmm. on your question is that USASOC is a Title X organization, meaning that our primary mission is to train, man, and equip our forces to be able to carry out their their missions. And that means that we're not an operational headquarters. Mm -hmm. We're a functional uh, ASCC, Army Service Component Command, but not, and not a geographic one. We're not directing operations from our jock floor on a day-to-day basis. We do have operational units underneath us that are forward deployed on a regular basis, typically over 4,000 deployed in approximately 70 to 80 countries on a daily basis, which is significant. And as I mentioned earlier, I think the latest figures were making up some, we're in the ballpark of 51% of the greater special operations command element so just the, uh, just within the Army, the Army component. Uh-huh. So a, a lion's share of 
the work um, in some ways, and that's not to say that the other services within SOCOM don't have really important piece to play, uh, not taking anything away from them. We just have a unique uh, role to play there as well. I hope that addressed most aspects of your question, though. I think you did have an international component well, the international to component, it as well. This, I, I think this is a, a it's very good the way you describe the the relationship between uh, Army Special Forces and the uh, the U.S. combatant command or the, the regional command wherever the station forces are 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 forward stationed. But the issue of uh, coordination with cooperation with our international partners uh, in various regions, because when one thinks about special forces. One thinks about operations that have to be kept as secret as possible for as long as possible. And that would suggest that you want to tell as few people as possible what you're planning on, right? So that would, that would then reduce the circle of people who are informed. How do you work out the kind of, uh, obviously, you would want your international partners to know there are special operations teams planning to operate, going to operate in an area. But how does how does how does a Special Operations Command manage those relationships? Or do they leave it to the local combatant commands to figure that out for them? So it's a big question, it, I know. It, it is. So from a macro perspective, mm-hmm. advancing partnerships is key for us. And that's one of what I will call um potential core competencies Mm -hmm. that we have. So we're in the midst of a review here on the back end of our strategy coming out and the rollout process that you rightly identified earlier that we're in the middle of. So in further defining what advancing partnerships means as one of our pillars or core competencies, but it's currently identified under the, the RSOF mission on page one of our strategies as something important that we uh, value, we always have. It's been called slightly different things in past strategies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but advancing partnerships, whether it be with DOD, whether it be with other SOF internationally, whether it be with the interagency, country teams, and so on, or combatant commands, as you mentioned, the aspect of what we tell and don't tell others and what remains secret and U.S. only is both a matter of classification, but and so that's the science aspect of it and what mm-hmm. we're allowed to do. But then there's very much an art aspect of the timing within the authorities that you have, if you will, and the freedom that you're given to share certain things, timing, uh, powered down to... Uh, various commanders on the ground is an art of when you do that, what are the implications? What are the risks? How much trust do I have built up with them? How long have I been working with them? What other factors need to be taken into consideration? What do they really need to know? And when do they need to know it? Um, that determines some of that calculus. Mm-hmm. And I, the uh, Army Special Forces and uh, U.S. Special Forces more broadly does engage in uh, joint training operations with international partners, right? Absolutely. And so that, that's how you build those kinds of, of relationships. Absolutely. So we do train, advise, assist, and accompany operations, building partner capacity. It's a huge part of what we do. Green Berets are typically thought of in a couple different capacities. People have called us snake eaters before, but 
perhaps as much or more well known and I think more appropriate is as teachers, Mm -hmm. whether we're operating in unconventional warfare type environments or foreign internal defense or something uh, similar, but that's not best binned under either one of those, even in uh, more kinetic or direct action type roles, but where we're partnered with other forces in this train advise assistant, potentially in some situations with the right authorities and policies in place in a given area of the world to to accompany them on different operations they're doing. That trust um, and those operations are critical and the mill-to-mill relationships are important on many levels, can flow over into the D realm of national power for Mm. diplomacy um, and offer opportunities there. It can also offer opportunities for the rest of the army and the joint force based upon our relationships where we have opportunities or a mandate to be in places where they're not, but they may come in later um, given changes in the world environment. Well, and I I have to say the image that you provide is a very good one, right? That the Green Berets, we think of them as snake eaters and warfighters, but they're also teachers and in a way ambassadors. That's an awful lot of pressure to put on young people in their uh, in their late 20s who are sent to places where there might not be very many uh, other representatives of the United States government. And I'm curious in the training that special forces operators get, um, how are they, how, how, if at all, are they trained to, to take on these larger sort of diplomatic informational responsibilities, right? They're not just teaching people how to fire guns. They're also uh, helping people understand the strategy they should pursue and also helping people understand why the Americans think this place is important. Absolutely. Well, it's a a responsibility that we take very seriously. Mm -hmm. And it's also an opportunity that we relish. And the the opportunity to to work in these capacities on something that a mission that is greater than ourselves is why many of us have joined the Department of Defense in general, whether you're on the conventional side or the unconventional side, the way it plays out in the specifics may be unique um, in certain ways for special operations, but as we do that mission, we um, attempt to be relevant, to be um, delivering things at the speed of relevance for mission accomplishment, and sometimes that's just information mm-hmm. that, that we pass back we obviously when 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 people join the special forces right they 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 know the things they're going to be asked to do but um but i am curious about is is part of special forces training uh preparing special forces operators for their roles as uh as as ambassadors if you will or is that is that something you you sort of hope they're re- they're going to be ready to do when they're when they're deployed as people like to say, hope is not a method or a course of action. And so absolutely. I knew, I knew, I knew that would be a red flag for right, a guy who works in strategic planning. Right. Ab- absolutely. So the training piece is huge, mm-hmm. but so too is the sessions and the selection and the sessions portion of it that comes to the left of the mm-hmm. training. Mm-hmm. And so all throughout that process, 
from start to finish and finish not just being when we're done with training in the official pipeline but more training when they get to the their units and then um you know their contributions back to the force when they get out of the military and whether that's retirement or otherwise many of those NCO, great NCOs that we have, as well as officers, contribute in other ways in giving back to the community, serving in the training in mm-hmm. various capacities as lane graders and so on. And so these cadre are super useful. The training is set up to ensure that folks are ready, incorporates best practices tailored to the current environment, you know, best practices from from previous uh, conflicts that we've been in, and people use those scenarios and then adapt them and put the operators going through the various training pipelines, whether it's in special forces, civil affairs, psychological operations, often referred to as the three tribes that make Mm -hmm. up the broader RSOF team. Again, just part of the Army's special operations, not lone or rogue cowboys. We are part of the Army team here and recognize the importance of fitting into that team with what we uniquely bring. All of that, those training pipelines look to make sure that their individuals on the back end are going to come out with what they need, having been put in stressful situations in those training environments, having to make decisions uh, quickly in stressful environments so that they're prepared to do it. Indeed, prepared to do it. And to quote from the conclusion of the, the strategy, right, that the uh, uh, our soft strategic value lies in uh, our ability to expand the options necessary for decision makers to wield influence and manage escalation in the competitive space and enable decisive operations by the joint force in war. Uh, thank you, Lieutenant Colonel Groves, for coming and explaining to us the strategy. Is there any place that uh, interested readers could find a copy of this uh, of, of the strategy? So absolutely. We have it posted on our website. If you do a Google search for Army Special Operation Forces Strategy, you should come right to it. Wonderful. And we'll, we'll put some information on this on the show notes for the program. But thank you very much, Lieutenant Colonel Gross, for joining us for this conversation and for being here on The Better Peace to help us understand uh, Army Special Forces and their new strategy. No, thanks, thanks so, much. so much for having me. I hope that both uh, the special operations community mm-hmm. uh, and professionals, as well as uh, other elements within our Army and the Joint Force, listen and, and recognize the role that we can play to help out as part of the greater team. Outstanding. Thanks very much. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. Please send us your comments uh, about this program, what you feel that you learned or would like to have learned, and definitely send us your suggestions for future programs. We hope that you will subscribe to A Better Peace and that you will uh, review the uh, podcast on any podcatcher on which you listen to A Better Peace. But until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. Thanks for joining us. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.com. 
www.armywarcollege.edu and have a great day.